And we're back. This is We Watch Movies. My name is Forrest. Joining me today, as always, my great pal, my co-host, the dulcet Elijah. Elijah, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm feeling very dulcet. You're very dulcet. Dulcet, sultry. What other, what other adjectives can we come up with? Uh, brooding. Brooding. <laughs> Dark and brooding. He's basically Bruce Wayne. That's what they call me. That is what they call you. That's what we called him in school. We called him Bruce. Yeah. Or, or Brucey when uh, we were feeling light and pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> Brucey. Ugh. I can only think of Finding Nemo now. Yeah, I can only think of Finding Nemo now as well. It's been a full week since last we, we podcasted. That is how the schedule goes. That's how that's how everything falls into place. You've been well this past week? Yeah, I've been pretty busy. Um, yeah. Speaking of imagine. the schedule, I will say I do have to announce that I am not going to be present on the podcast for the next two weeks because I'm getting married and I figured that's more important than this. <laughs> what are you saying? More important nonsense. It's the only thing that matters. Movies and podcasts. I mean, they're close second. Close second. No. Yeah, so you'll you'll be getting married. You'll be taking some time off. I'm mm-hmm. so happy for you guys, you and Jackie. I wish I could be there. Hopefully, you know, further down the road, I'll be able to, once you guys have settled in, I'm hoping to get up there and visit you guys. That'd be really exciting. And maybe record a podcast live. That would be fun. That would be super cool once all this but, well, corona yeah. nonsense clears uh, up. Yeah, yeah, I am I am done. I'm ready to just move on. <laughs> yeah, hopefully yeah. everything is smooth back into life, but I doubt it will be. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. But while you're gone, don't worry. I will still be here, guys, all by my lonesome. I'll bring along... A couple friends, actually. And it'll be fun. We won't do our standard two movies in a second segment, but we'll, we'll do a, a shorter variation of that. And it'll be, a, it'll be a lot of fun. About as much fun as we can have without the great Elijah. The dulcet. The dulcet Elijah. That's my official title. <laughs> the dulcet. That's what they call me, dulcet Brucey. <laughs> Dulcet Brucey. Well, you have to be dulcet to be Batman. So true, very true. All right. So you want to jump into these movies here? Yeah, we've got two and a half to talk about today, right? Two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah. So let's let's start with Bird. Actually, I'm be... gonna I'm gonna interrupt and start with a spoiler alert for Hey, you know what? All of the movies we're talking about today. If you hear a movie mentioned, it's likely it'll be spoiled. So be ready. I do want to have to go back and post and add in a spoiler warning. So thank you, Elijah, for being on top of things. I mean, I thought that would be a good spoiler warning. Oh, I'm, it was great. I appreciate it. Cool. All right. So we'll start with Bird because it is a, it is a 
two hours and 40 minute film. I picked it for this week because I was pretty excited about it. I wanted to watch it for a while. But it's also two weeks out from Elijah's wedding. So he doesn't really have three hours to burn on a biopic. Yeah, I didn't watch this one. Yeah, which, but he did do some background just so he has some context. He did listen to some music. He read the plot summary of this film, so he's he's here, but I'm just going to talk about it a little bit because I liked it. Uh, Bird is a 1988 Clint Eastwood film about the life and untimely death of the great jazz legend Charlie Parker. Bird. Bird, that's right, Bird. Do you know why he's called Bird, by the way? Nope, but it's fun to say. It is fun to say he is called Bird because he likes chicken. Chicken's good. He loved loved chicken. He loved chicken so much. He ate it so much they started calling him Yard Bird, and that got shortened down to Bird. What a legend named after chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Most people, including myself, consider him the greatest alto sax player of all time. He is a man that revolutionized how one played that instrument. He was born in 1920. This would have been his centennial. This would be his centennial birthday come August 29th. And as the story progressed through his life, you saw many of the ups and downs of his life. One of the key things that was honed in on, well, really two, but The first one was his driving desire to be the best jazz musician he can be, specifically the saxophone playing. And that is hit home with this really pinnacle moment of his young life. He was, I believe he was 17 years old. And he went to a Kansas City bar to perform. And he got up on stage and he starts playing. And I'm not a fluent, I'm not fluent in music, but he was playing out of tune. He was playing the wrong notes. Something was wrong in how he was playing. And it was so bad that the drummer took his cymbal and threw it at Charlie Parker. And he was recounted in Whiplash. As recounted in Whiplash, Elijah, do you remember where he threw the symbol? Um, in the bar where they were. Uh, that, very good, Elijah. <laughs> in, in Whiplash, J.K. Simmons' character claims that he threw the symbol at Charlie Parker's head. In real life, it was not that dramatic. He threw it at his feet. But... Nonetheless, the effect was the same. Charlie Parker was devastated and embarrassed, and he was determined to be the greatest he could be. He moved to New York. He started playing, getting better. He met Dizzy Gillespie. Everyone's Gillespie. got weird names in the jazz industry. And I screwed it up. It's Dizzy Gillespie. Cool. Not Dizzy Gillespie. Yeah. Not Dizzy Gillespie. It's Dizzy Gillespie. Darn it. I've been working on that all week and I screwed it up. You botched it. 
I botched it. Anyway, the other huge defining feature of Charlie Parker's life is the fact that at 15 years old, he became a drug addict. Yeah, that was very present in the Wikipedia summary. So he constantly struggled with heroin addiction throughout his life. And he meets this trumpeter in the film. His name is Red Rodney, who admires Charlie Parker. And they form this bond. Is that his real name? I believe it was his real name. Ah, so it was Red Rodney in the film and in real life. Yes. Great character. You are correct. (laughs) It was actually Robert Roland Chudnik, but he was professionally known as Red Rodney. Oh, cool. Yeah. So they form this bond, and Charlie Parker's very adamant that he doesn't need heroin to be successful. He, He says to Red, you can emulate Bird without being a drug addict and eventually he discovers that red has become a drug addict and he blames himself and basically threatens red to get off heroin later in life red did manage to kick the heroin and he credited it in part to charlie parker but did parker charlie, however himself yeah. was never yeah unfortunately charlie parker was never able to kick it himself. And it's something he struggled with until the day he died at the early age of 34. That's what shocked me the most about reading about it was that this dude made such an impact before mm-hmm. like he died at 34. That's terrible, but it's crazy how talented yeah. he must've been to uh, affect the jazz world so heavily in that short amount of time. Yeah, he was, yeah, he, he is easily, in my opinion, and the opinion of most everyone, the greatest alto sax player ever. He inspired so many people that have gone on to just become legends in the jazz world. It, yeah, he is incredible. And being only 34, it reminds me a lot of, in the country music world, Hank Williams Sr., who wrote hit after hit after hit. He was really country music's first superstar. And he died at 29. Jeez, Louise. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 And he had so many hits. It was ridiculous. But, and, and the same thing is true with Charlie Parker. And he, yeah, he, he, he was truly incredible. I love his music. He's great. And, it, and it's heartbreaking that you, you see so much talent. Now, looking back, this is so many years ago, but you look back and you see this guy who clearly had so much talent and you wonder what he could have done if he hadn't had this drug problem. One of the hardest hitting scenes in the movie was the moment where the coroner comes to basically take the body to the morgue and the paramedics are there. And they call it in and they say, he's a man, he's approximately 68 years of age. And the woman standing there, who is his friend, says he was only 34. Oof. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah, it, it, it was. So it, I think this is a very important film 
in the landscape of jazz because there's so little footage of Charlie Parker. I think there's two or three videos that you can find on YouTube of Charlie Parker and only one of them he's performing music. Wow. Yeah. So to have a story to have a story told is important. Now I have a couple critiques. One is they cast Force Whitaker as Charlie Parker and I think Whitaker is a great actor. I just didn't see him fit perfectly in this role. That's not to say he didn't perform it well, but the way he performed it wasn't the way I would have seen them portray Charlie Parker. The other issue I have is that it was from 1988 and the narrative structure was very odd. They they started at the end of the film and they kept jumping back in time to different places in time and then when they jump back they would jump back again so you're in it's like it's like flashback inception it was that sounds kind of jarring it was it was a little hard to follow i don't think it was clint eastwood's best work as a director but that's got to be hard for him to top unforgiven it is yeah yeah definitely one thing of note I'd like to point out before we move on to the films you have seen is in leading up to this film, as they were trying to develop it, obviously music is a great uh, and very important part of this movie. However, the recordings of Charlie Parker are so, so old that they weren't music, uh, they weren't film worthy. They would have sounded very poor. However, Charlie Parker's widowed wife, Chan Parker, had some recordings that Clint Eastwood and his team were able to engineer to bring the quality up to where they could put it into film. So they, for the majority of the songs, they re-recorded all the other musical pieces with the exception of Charlie Parker, Parker's bits. So when you're listening to the music in the film, everything else has been recorded, re-recorded with the exception of what Forrest Whitaker's Charlie Parker is playing, which is the actual Charlie Parker playing. Okay. That's really and, cool. I like that. Yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was very well done because I think that's it. Obviously I think it's important for Charlie Parker to be playing in music in his own movie. There were times where you could notice that the quality coming from the alto sax was a little poorer than the quality of the accompanying instruments, but I let that slide. I would give this film probably somewhere between a 7 and a 7.25. I think it hasn't aged necessarily well, but I do think it's an important story if you are a fan of jazz and definitely not one you would want to miss if you're a fan of jazz. However, I don't think it you're giving it a seven point one two five. Sure, that's, that's a first for the show. Seven point one two five. I'll just leave you with this: you probably won't want to stick around for two and two hours and forty minutes if you're not really interested into the world of jazz. But if you are, definitely not one you want to miss. That's cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm not sure what I would have thought of it, but I'm glad you got to talk about it. Yeah, it really would have come down to how much interest you have in the subject matter. So I think it that's part of the reason why 
when we had our discussions about switching it to another film for you to watch, that was one of the things that came down to for me was I didn't think you would necessarily appreciate it as much as I would. That's a fair assessment, I think. <laughs> so you want to talk about our next film some? Yeah, I do. I want to talk about both these movies a ton. <laughs> well, why don't you, you want to continue with Baby Driver? Yeah. All right. Tell us about Baby Driver. Oh gosh, you didn't write a summary? So much pressure. I did. I yeah. no, I've got I've got a summary. I just wanted to see if you had anything well, to let's say. Let's see let's see what I can remember here. Baby Driver is a 2017 movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2017 mm-hmm. directed by Edgar Wright, written by Edgar Wright as well, I believe. Uh starring yes. Ansel Elgort, Lily James, Kevin Spacey, uh John Bernthal, Jamie Foxx, John Hamm, and I forget the actress's name. Isa Gonzalez. Yes. Isa Gonzalez as well. And it is awesome. It is awesome. It's about a young man named Baby, and he works as a getaway driver for a crew of criminals that's run by a mysterious man named Doc. After a job goes awry, Baby must run to save not only his life, but the lives of those he cares about. Which is two people. <laughs> yep. Um, this movie, I'll start off by saying, is one of, if not my favorite, pure popcorn movies. Like, mm-hmm. this movie, I don't think, is really trying to say anything super deep. I don't think it's trying to give you an existential crisis and make you think about your life in a new way, but I do think it's trying to entertain you. And I think it does that just as well as any other movie out there. Mm. It's just so much fun. It is a lot of fun. So this was, I don't remember if I said this was, was your pick. I yes. hadn't seen it before this weekend. I I took major issue with that. I've been begging you to watch this movie. So what what did you think of it? You got to give me something here. No, I liked it. It was good. I was a big fan, a big fan of the fact that it was filmed and took place in Atlanta, which is awesome because Atlanta is used so often as a stand-in for other cities and films but it finally got its moment in the sun. And I was so happy for that. It made me so happy watching the movie and saying, I know exactly where they are. It was, it was a lot of fun. I love Atlanta. It's my favorite city. So that's cool and all, but how about, but what about the about movie? The movie? <laughs> <laughs> One more thing about Atlanta. I thought it was interesting that Edgar Wright had originally conceived the film taking place in LA, but when they got there and realized that they would need to, get permission to shut down highways for all the chase scenes. They realized it was too costly and there was too many, too much red tape to go through. So they went to Atlanta and in Atlanta, they were able to do what they wanted and the local government was a lot more lenient. So that's why we ended up in Atlanta. Plus there are a lot of muscle and sports cars there. So the film kind of fit in Atlanta. My favorite this thing film, about Atlanta is 28 to three. <laughs> best thing Atlanta's ever Uh, done in my opinion or (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm not sorry. Continue. So about a let no about Baby Driver. Mm-hmm. This is a really good film. The I've said this before on the podcast. I'm not the biggest fan of car chase sequences, right? But these were awesome, right? Well, and in part because a lot of the car chase sequences in other films feel like just a distraction from the main story, something that's happening, and I'm just like, all right, get along with it, move along from it. This is just boring at this point. This film, the film was about the getaway. And yeah. I loved it. And it was so engaging. Everything. Not just the car chase scenes, the car getaway scenes, but the foot races at the end of the oh, film. I love I love the foot chase sequence where he's jumping across like the picnic tables in the park or whatever oh. and goes through the mall. It's such mm-hmm. a such a good sequence. And I, I think yeah. it's also worth pointing out here, every single action scene and even a lot of things not in the action scenes are timed to the soundtrack of the movie because baby has tinnitus um which is a constant ringing in his ear due to a accident Mm -hmm. he suffered when he was a child um so he constantly plays he has like headphones or earbuds and constantly to drown it out with music and we witness the events of the film through his ears so we are listening to the music he's listening to and it's so fun watching everything be in time with the music. One of my favorite kind of fun facts of this film is there's the, there's a scene where they do a carjacking or whatever. And the scene is beat is played to the song neat, neat, neat by the damned. However, that song (laughs) is shorter than the sequence in the film. So Edgar Wright's solution to that was having baby restart the, <laughs> the song. Yeah. I love and it. I thought that, I thought that was amazing. One of the other things I love about the fact that all these getaways and the foot chasing is how much of the city you get to see and how many different locations you're moving to at so many different points. So you really get the, it, it feels like a very big, real fleshed out world because it is, right? Edgar Wright specifically wanted to film all of his shots in basically downtown Atlanta because he never, instead of the leafy green highways, I don't know if you've been to Georgia, but there's a lot of leafy green highways and like the one you see at the end of the film, but he didn't want to do that even though Georgia had offered them basically unfettered access to those highways, but he wanted to keep it all downtown. So you had this feel you never felt like they were escaping. Yeah, that's cool. It definitely works because it's mm-hmm. all concrete for most of the movie. Um, yep. One thing I also really love about this movie is that sure you get the awesome, amazing, Uh, car sequences and the chases and everything and the music is super Mm -hmm. fun and entertaining there's also a pretty emotional meaningful story in there too uh between um baby and deborah which Mm. is really nice it's they have great chemistry i think like really really good chemistry and um it's nice to see an entertaining blockbuster 
that's backed up by an engaging narrative instead of just being explosions a la Transformers. Yeah. Yeah. It was really nice to see the, they seem to have really nice on-screen rapport together and you definitely bought their relationship. Yeah. Even though it's a very young relationship, you, you buy into Mm -hmm. it very quickly, which is hard to do. Also, I love the scene in the diner when he's got like the glittery pink iPod and they're just flirting back and forth. It's super cute. Two, two, two notes on that scene. First, I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't realize this until afterwards, but the reason he had so many iPods was because he's lifting them, lifting them off of the cars he's st- uh, stealing. <laughs> yep. So that's why he has so many iPods and such a diverse taste in music. The other thing I thought was hilarious is when he refers to T-Rex as Trex. Trex. <laughs> And some of the, I, I guess some of the producers, some of the people working on it wanted to remove that from the film because it made Baby look like an idiot. But Edgar Wright loved it so much that he kept it in. It's funny. It works. It's hilarious. I laughed. And it, it kind of shows that he really doesn't have much outside interaction. Yeah, He's a little sheltered, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, and when we when we slowly get more about his backstory, it's it's kind of tragic how he ended up in crime and how his parents were constantly fighting and abusive, or at least his dad was abusive, and yeah. uh, it caused both of them to die. And that, on the, like on a highway car accident, and that's how he got his ears damaged, and that's why he drowned out the music. And I love that. His mom was a singer. It's just, mm-hmm. it's all very satisfying. Like nothing feels loose or unanswered. You, you come away from this movie feeling very pleased. <laughs> you do. You do. Do you want to talk about the, the crew for a couple of minutes? Bad guy crew? Yeah, the bad guy crew. Yeah. Jamie Foxx is nuts. Jamie Foxx, he is, which which is better. It's better than the last Jamie Foxx film I've seen. Which was that? The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I'm so sorry. It was better than the last one I saw too, which is Django Unchained. But Django Unchained is great. Mm. Mm. We couldn't we couldn't make it through a podcast episode without referencing Quentin Tarantino. Hey, there's going to be another later, so get ready. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I thought all of the what was incredible by all the performances, uh, John Hamm playing Buddy, and I believe her name is Isaac Gonzalez playing Darling, and Jimmy Fox playing Bats, as they all felt so. So unsettling, if you will. You feel yeah. you see them on screen, and you never fully feel comfortable. Baby's there. You never feel comfortable for him. Clearly, Bats is insane. Mm-hmm. But the person that made me feel the most uncomfortable on screen was John Hamm's buddy. Yeah, he's he, There's, he feels like a wild card from the first time you see him. Mm-hmm. There's specifically this scene where 
buddy comes over and is friendly with baby and they're asking him about he's they're talking about the killer track and he was telling him about there's a specific queen song that was used to be his his song when he drove getaway yeah and they and you know asks them to listen to it and they're listening to it and i felt so uneasy in that moment because it felt like buddy was indulging baby almost to make himself feel good and it wasn't about engaging with baby and as soon as it was inconvenient to engage with baby he'd flip on him and i because i've been in situations like that before where you have people that seem to take interest in you but it's only it's only very surface level and yeah. i was feeling uneasy watching that and from that moment on i never felt comfortable with buddy at all <laughs> yeah for sure um what did you think of bat's death scene I thought it was about time. <laughs> yeah, you're you're ready for it by then. And it was a very satisfying manner in which it happened. Yeah, it was just baby having enough of this guy. Yeah. Oh. Break down uh, what happened for those who haven't seen. Oh, well, Bats is getting insane and threatening everyone and it's miserable. And they go up to this Oh. Hello, Ellen. Ellen, she's back. She's back. <laughs> um, anyway. We love it. We do. Anyway, um, they pull up to the side of this bank or the back of this bank to do a job, and they're parked behind this truck. It's not a pickup. It's like it's like a pickup with a bed. Uh, I've seen farmers use them. Um, but off the back of it there's a lot of like construction supplies in it and off the back of it is a beam um and baby like everyone comes back to the car after the job and they're like go baby drive whatever go so he just floors it forward straight into the truck the beam goes through the window and impales bats who's in the passenger seat and all of its gory glory and it's very satisfying (laughs) and then everything goes crazy and that's when we get baby running everywhere it's yeah yeah it was it was really jarring because because up till that moment i'm not gonna say it didn't earn its r rating but up till that moment it felt very light in terms of the violence not that there wasn't any but it felt fairly light and then you just get that moment and it's like oh all right yeah (laughs) One other thing I love about this movie is that it's very funny in a lot of parts. I love, love, love when John Bernthal is I was talking, about to say the same thing. He's talking to Baby. Baby's got his sunglasses on. John Bernthal like whacks the sunglasses off his face, and Baby just takes another pair out of his pocket and puts them on when John Bernthal's back is turned. And he turns around and whacks them off again. And he walks mm-hmm. forward and you see John Bernthal, he's in focus. And in the background, like out of focus, you see baby take out a third pair and put them on. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> I love oh, it. I love it. Also, yeah. John Bernthal, his last line in the movie, which is about 15 minutes in, he's like, okay, everybody, if you don't see me again, I'm dead. <laughs> and you never see him again. Oh, 
gosh. So he died. So without getting too many spoilers for the future, the episode title of this podcast is Killing John Bernthal. <laughs> Oof. Oof. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't notice that. that. <laughs> one, one of the deaths is much darker than the other. Definitely. The other one is very subtle and implied. That I didn't realize that was his last line. That's it, It's really amazing. funny. Yeah. What do you think of Kevin Spacey as Doc? Um, I I don't. As a performance, he did great. He's a good actor. I don't really like where his personal life has gone, and I don't tend to support him much anymore. But he he was a good actor when he had jobs, and this was a good performance from him. Doc as a character was very interesting. This was. Was this one of his last films before it was all one of his last allegations came ones, out? Yeah, because yeah, I haven't seen him in a, in a while. I was yeah. I was a bit surprised when I saw him in this film, but I agree, I definitely agree with what you said. And as a character, I think he played Doc well. Oh, aside from the personal issues, of course. Yes, which are major issues, and I am glad he's not getting work anymore. Yeah. One of the interesting scenes is when Doc and Baby are in the car and he wants Baby to scope out the post office for this final job. And he sends his nephew in to help scope out the job. I thought that was an interesting detail. And it is one that Edgar Wright received from talking with actual ex-cons who would say, you know, who, who told him that when they went to scope a bank job, they wouldn't go unless they brought in a nephew or a son because it immediately alleviated any suspicion of him. That's really interesting. And yeah, it just so happens that this nephew was very knowledgeable and observational. <laughs> Clearly at one times. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's just, it's a supremely entertaining movie. And you mind if we talk about the climax? Go ahead. So it surprised me the first time I watched it. I didn't expect Buddy to be the final boss, but they get Buddy and Baby getting this. Is this a video game? (laughs) I mean, basically. Final boss. All of the crew crew members (laughs) are slowly eliminated throughout the movie. Um, That's fair. Go ahead. Yeah. So they're in the parking garage and they're having this crazy car chase where baby's driving backward through a parking garage up all the levels and it's awesome and um the queen song is on the the killer track um from earlier in the movie is on and it's super cool and um (laughs) i love when he like drifts to a stop and lily james deborah's like oh so that's what you meant by driver or whatever Um, (laughs) And yeah, there's just this epic showdown with lots of cars and crashing. And eventually there's like a car version of tug of war. And I guess the pickup um, baby was in had more torque and pushes buddy's car off the side of the parking garage. And 
Yeah. The end. Fun fact. It's awesome. You know what? Do you know what parking garage they used? No, because only you care about where they shoot things. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> they they filmed it in the Falcons training facility parking garage. Ah, huh. That's a good. Which they only were a good football team there. Twenty-eight-three. <laughs> Very good. Which they. Were, you keep you keep saying it like I care. I'm not a Falcons fan. <laughs> oh, I know. Someone out there is. Someone out there making very upset. (laughs) Well, by the way, our Falcons audience, twenty-eight to three. Yeah, but it was they were only allowed to film at night. Another thing that I thought was funny is there's this this moment where they kiss uh, Lily James and Ansel Elgort baby and Deborah kiss in the car, and it's being criticized at that moment where they finally kiss should have been longer or more passionate or whatnot. However, that's a stupid Edgar, criticism. <laughs> Edgar defended it by saying it was the, the last, the last shot of one of the last days and they were in this parking garage and they had been, they, had overshot there a lot of time by an hour and the cops were literally yelling at them to stop. <laughs> so that's all he could get out was just Kiss faster. Whatever was <laughs> if you would. Well, whoever criticized the movie for having oh, hello again, Ellen. Ellen. Um if that's the only criticism people can come up with for this movie. I guess it's a pretty good movie. I would agree. What do you want to talk? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was going to say, do you want to talk about the very ending, the very, the very end, the the final yeah. shot of the film? Yeah, uh, I've heard a lot of conjecture about whether or not it was real, but basically, Baby actually goes to prison for his crimes, and it's implied that through good behavior and testimonials of people who he helped out throughout the movie. He's released early and gets to be with Deborah. Um, A lot of people think uh, all of that was fake and happened in his head and that he's still in prison, but I like to think it was real and that he got out and got to be with Deborah because it's nicer that way. (laughs) Well, I have have the answer for you. Oh, yeah. Mr. Research himself over here. (laughs) Ouch. So, so in the one of the earlier drafts of the film, Baby leaves the modern prison and approaches Deborah, who's in her fifties apparel, and he is also in his in fifties apparel, so that it's clear it's a dream. However, when the head of Sony read it. He was not a fan of the final shot being a dream sequence. So Edgar Wright went back, thought about it, and rewrote it to have the dream sequence earlier in the film. And it it foreshadowed the final shot of the film where Baby comes out and he is just dressed in his casual apparel. And the idea was actually inspired by the unicorn dream from Blade Runner. 
Oh, the unicorn dream. Yes. That one's pretty infamous. So because of a Sony, Sony big guy, it's, I guess it's not a dream sequence. Yeah. They're together now. Oh. And that's nice. I like it. I like it. I took it. I didn't even perceive it as being anything controversial or left up to interpretation. I just assumed that happened in real life because of the earlier foreshadowing dream and it was now playing out in real life. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a satisfying ending to a movie that is satisfying overall. I think it's just hugely entertaining. The action it's directed and edited incredibly well. Um, I'm pretty sure it got nominated for best editing, um, which it deserves. It may have. And yeah, it's it's just fun. It's a fun movie mm-hmm. with fun action, fun characters. I love it. Yeah, it's a good movie. So you want to get to scoring? Yeah. Yeah, I I really love this movie a lot. I'm going to give it an 8.75. Okay. It's hugely entertaining, and it's one one of those movies you can throw on any Friday, Saturday afternoon and enjoy. Yeah, it is is a lot of fun, and I would think it has a lot of rewatch value. It does. I wasn't as... Yeah. Nothing specific specific stood out to why I'm going to give it the score I do, but I'm going to give it a 7.5, and that's ultimately because, and you'll probably disagree with me here, and that's fine, is it just didn't have that magic that I was hoping the film would have. It felt it was a good movie, it just, nothing made it a a phenomenal movie for me. It just was great. Good. Great. I mean, that's fine. Movie mm-hmm. magic is subjective, I think, and it, it definitely yeah. clicks for me in that way. It, it sings for me. but Movies certainly hit people different ways, and for me, for whatever reason, it didn't click on that magic. Oh, yeah, for sure. So. People, Movies definitely hit different ways because one of the few times I've openly cried during a movie was during a Planet of the Apes film. So, um, I was... I was... I was... I was hoping that you weren't going to say Speed Racer, and I'm so thankful you didn't say Speed Racer. I, I tear up almost every time I watch Speed Racer. <laughs> Nonja. <laughs> Man, it's amazing. Someday we're going to do that movie on this podcast, and you're not going to say a word for 20 minutes because I'm just going to talk about it and not let you say anything. <laughs> That's fine. I don't have anything to say about it other than you're going to make me rewatch that. Yeah. I wasn't thinking, amazing. I wasn't thinking when I agreed to do a podcast with you. <laughs> Speed Racer every week. Uh, no. <laughs> we watch movies where we watch Speed Racer and whatever Force chooses for that week. I'll do my own spin-off podcast called We Watch Speed Racer or I Watch Speed Racer. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah. We have another movie to talk about that sadly isn't Speed we Racer, do. but it's still good in its own right. <laughs> still good in its own right. It's okay. It's all right. Do you want to intro us? Yes, I shall intro us. So our third film that we are talking about today is the film I chose to replace Bird 
Taylor Sheridan's 2017 film Wind River. It is a neo snow western. How about that? Wow. That's like mm. a combination of Hell or High Water and The Great Silence. Not really, but we'll go with it. No, I mean like snow and neo-western. I, I know. I was, yeah. All right. It totally is that. Sometimes we both understand our jokes and yet we still come out awkwardly. It was written and directed by Taylor Sheridan. And it stars Jeremy Radner, Elizabeth Olsen, Graham Greene, Kelsey Cho. I believe that's how I chow. Forgive me if I mispronounced her name. Gil Birmingham, again. He's we back. love Gil on this show. He's great. Gil's a and good, good guy. He is a good guy. And John Bernthal, again. Yeah. It's much sadder for John Bernthal this time. This, when movie, I, this yeah. movie's hard. This is a hard movie to watch. It's I def I definitely agree there. Yeah, it's Hell or High Water. Obviously, it's part of the same deal as Hell or High Water and Sicario, the same quote unquote frontier trilogy. Um, right. But it's much more in line tonally with Sicario. Mm-hmm. So let me. So the 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 summary of the film would be when a game warden discovers a dead girl in a snowy Wyoming wilderness, a rookie FBI agent is called in to determine if it is a homicide. Like you just said, it's, it's the final installment of that frontier trilogy you mentioned with Sicario, Hiller high water. And what is it? What is, what does it say about a trilogy when Hiller high water is the lightest of the three films yeah yeah this this film definitely felt more in line with sicario however and it's almost hard to say this but because of the subject matter and how it is based on real events this film was far more somber in tone than even sicario i felt in some ways Mm. I might argue with you on that one, but it's at least as somber. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's very tragic. Um, basically, like you said, it's a murder mystery, um, and it's established very early on what kind of movie you're watching because you're discovered that the murder victim was raped before she died, and that she was she had been running barefoot in the snow sub-zero temperatures for at least three and a half miles and it's eventually discovered she ran for six miles before her lungs gave way and she just drowned in her own blood um it's and that really sets the tone and one of my favorite things about the movie is how the environment is its own character and how Jeremy Renner's character, Corey establishes it as a character when he describes how the girl must have died with um, the cold getting to her lungs because it immediately tells you just how brutal the conditions are. Mm-hmm. It's no, you're yeah. Yeah. It's just, it makes you feel cold. And it's oh yeah, it's it's so sad to watch, and especially discover how everything happened. Right, 
as I as I mentioned previously at the beginning of the film, it says based on true events, and it's not based on one specific event or a true true story, if you will, as it's many Hollywood films are. But it was based on subject matter that is very much true. Uh, yeah. While they were filming this film, uh, the director Taylor Sheridan was visited by some Shoshone tribal re- leaders who surprised him when they told him that at that time, as they were filming the film in Wind River, there were 12 unsolved murders of women on the reservation of about 6,000 people. Yeah, and due to stupid U.S. court laws, they would probably remain unsolved. Mm-hmm. In, in part because the the tribe can't arrest non-citizens. Yeah. So it it's a it's a rough film from the onset. The subject matter is very, very rough. But between that, you get a very emotional, very human story, and you get some outstanding performances. Specifically, you mentioned last night, Elizabeth Olsen surprised you. She surprised me a lot because, to be honest, I'd only ever seen her as Scarlet Witch, and that's a pretty light role, all things considered. Mm-hmm. But when she came Certainly. in, when she came in as an FBI agent, it was just like all business and kicking butt. It, it I was not expecting that, and it was really, really cool to see. Um, yeah. And speaking of good performances, Gil Birmingham, phenomenal, yeah. absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. This is the second week we've talked about him now, and he 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 just impresses me because this is now second week we've talked about him, and the second back-to-back film where he's performing with you could say all-star casts, and he doesn't just hold his own, but just blows away with his performances. Yeah, it's amazing. That scene when he just sees Corey and breaks down about the death oh. of his daughter is incredibly performed and heartbreaking to watch. Um, because he, he, of course, plays the father of the murdered girl. Um, the other thing, this is, this is a little off topic, but I do want to say one thing I loved about the characters in this movie is that everyone was good at their job. Nobody... Mm-hmm. Nobody was incompetent and there were no, none of those frustrating movie moments where you're just like, well, just do this or stop being stupid or everyone right. was good at their job. And like when somebody like when Elizabeth Olsen, the FBI character, she's very unprepared for the cold and the environment they're in. And she mm-hmm. doesn't try to show that she knows what she's doing. She defers to Corey who does know what he's doing. And she's like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I need your help. And it was very refreshing to have characters who acted like human beings. It was. And there was this, uh, there was another, there was another moment where she, where I had this realization of what kind of character this is. I thought that she would be this big, I wouldn't say big shot, but this FBI agent that doesn't really care about the case. It's just another case. And yeah, I thought that too. Won't emotionally invest herself. She's just, okay, come in, get out. And you realize the scene where she's arguing with the coroner about the cause of death and how, how invested in this case she is. And she was arguing with the, 
Mm-hmm. She was arguing with the coroner because the coroner said the cause of death was, I guess, stuff uh, death from the cold and suffocation in the lungs from the blood filling her lungs. And she was saying, no, you have to make this a homicide. This was a, this was clearly a homicide and the coroner agreed, but the actual cause of death was something that he, he couldn't put homicide on the report and she was upset because if he didn't, then she couldn't get any other FBI teams out there and it just frustrated her. Yeah, which is why she turns to Corey, which ends up being mm-hmm. great because their chemistry and relationship is super awesome to see kind of just grow and flourish because they become close by the end. Um, mm-hmm. And they're just a great team. It's it's very good. Um, another thing I want to bring up is obviously the setup for this movie is pretty horrific, but for most of the runtime, it's a pretty mellow um, somber as you said before just drama but mm-hmm. there are two specific maybe three just explosions of brutal violence that kind of come out of nowhere right um, my favorite one is when they're at the trailer of the druggies mm. um, and it kind of seems like this routine investigation until the, the the addict who is Gil Birmingham's son um, will not, he doesn't attack them. One of his buddies sprays Elizabeth Olsen and the police chief with pepper spray. Um, mm-hmm. And the action that follows is nuts because you can tell Olsen is just trying to see and she's burnt, her eyes are burning and everything's insane and I love the shot where she leans around the corner and nothing's there. And she leans back to like wipe her eyes again. And she leans over again to peek and the guy's just standing there and she doesn't hesitate. She just blows him away. It's, it was awesome. So much. Let's just talk about, there's so much tension in this film. So much natural built, especially like you said in the trailer there. I I was on the edge of my seat, you know, watching her trying to move through the trailer and she couldn't see a thing. Yeah, it's oh man. And like you you even get a POV shot from the other guy and you kind of see her slowly walking toward him and you just you freak out because you don't want her to die. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it was that was a great scene, and then that's my favorite scene, the trailer scene. Mm-hmm. And then the scene that follows, where Corey inter- interrogates uh, Gil Birmingham's car- uh, the son in the car. Mm-hmm. I thought, I thought it was very. It was. It, it seemed to, obviously these are all actors acting in a film, but it felt very emotional, very raw. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And very, very personal. He a little backstory for Corey. His own daughter, who was friends with the girl that was murdered, had been murdered several years prior, and no one knew what happened. And so that had stuck with Corey, and it's in part why he was such so emotionally connected to this murder. 
notwithstanding the fact that he was good friends with the family. And so he's having this discussion with the son in the back of the police car, trying to figure out if he knows anything that could lead to the whereabouts of his sister's murder. And it was this, the scene, this moment where the, the son is, is talking to Corey says, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? You couldn't even protect your daughter. What's this? We, you're just an outsider. And Corey just grabs his head and, and slams it against the front of the. Yeah. And the, the scene in front of him. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like this, listen here moment. And it was, it was so well acted. And yeah. I, it, and it was really this moment of catharsis in this film that was really heavy. Yeah, the the catharsis is not. It doesn't happen often in this movie, but the few moments mm-hmm. that do give you catharsis um, are very satisfying. And I think the biggest catharsis of all is the ending, which I think we can start working toward. Yeah. Um, so, how about that scene? When they, so they, they figured they, their prime suspect is this man who had been dating this girl and they were trying to find this guy, Matt. And as they're searching for him, they discover his body in the woods. And Matt worked as a security guard for this mining company, I believe it was. Something like that. Might've been an oil company. Yeah, mining or oil company. And they all head out to basically uh, search his belongings and interview his co-workers. And it is an incredibly tense moment when they arrive. Yeah, the whole thing is tense because from the beginning, you can tell everyone's on edge. And there's one part where everyone or like the the workers kind of start surrounding the cops subtly and the cops call them out. They're like, yo, why are you surrounding me? And then there's this huge, everyone pulls their guns out on everyone. And it's just really tense. And I love that Elizabeth Olsen's like, I have to defuse this. She's like, FBI, I am the only authority here. Take mm-hmm. us to the trailer. That was a really cool character moment. Um, yeah. And then when they get to the trailer, she's knocking. I love the transition because she's oh, knocking on the door. Wasn't that phenomenal? It's phenomenal. She's knocking on the door. And we cut to the inside of the trailer. We see John Bernthal like shaving or something. And you're immediately like, oh, so John Bernthal is this Pete character or whatever who we're looking for. But no, John Bernthal opens the door and the native girl who had been killed walks in. And you immediately know, okay, this is the flashback. We're going to see what happened. And man, it's hard because they like he you you're led the whole movie to believe that he was the bad guy but you see that he was actually this loving nice guy who really did care about her and his co-workers specifically this guy pete were terrible humans and beat him and raped her and she barely got away as they were literally beating him to death over basically nothing. Yeah, I had, I had, I had a really hard time with that sequence, and it, 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 
it was it was enough for me to have to skip over large portions of it because it was just it was, it, it's hard to watch it is hard to watch and it doesn't shy away from showing the terror of it mm-hmm. that said go ahead yeah so you, you find out what happened and then we get another transition back into it with more knocking and then this gunshot just comes through the door of the trailer. We're back in the present now and just hits Elizabeth Olsen square in the chest and she's just blown backward and everything, all hell breaks loose. And it's the most literally chaotic, insane gunfights ever. Cause everyone is six feet from everyone else. And there's like five guys on each side, just shooting at anything they can. It's nuts. It is. It's absolutely insane, man. And and you and you're not quite sure who's who's living, who who's still alive, who's who's been killed. The police chief is killed. Elizabeth Olsen's character is laying there in the snow. You're not quite sure what what her situation is. And it looks like the the bad guys have won won the shootout. Yeah, because there's one, see two it. two of them still standing. Yeah, and you can see. You you can see them finishing off a couple of the injured police officers execution style, and then just out of nowhere you hear I think you hear the ring of the gun and then one of the bad guys just be hit and immediately fall to the ground, no, and no, you no, realize sorry. that correction. Go ahead. He didn't fall. He got blown <laughs> away. <laughs> That was one of the most violent kills I've seen. He went flying. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. But you see, he, he goes flying and he's killed. And then you realize that Jeremy Renner, John, Jeremy Renner's Corey has been watching all this unfold from his, uh, I, guess, I guess from his uh, sniper position up on the mountain yep he, he was investigating something else and followed snowmobile tracks to the overlook of the mining camp and watched everything happen and had a perfect position and it was established earlier that he's an excellent marksman so yeah and that was that was a that was a great scene in my opinion because just just like we discussed they it looked like the bad guys had won and then he just just like that boom and the guy goes flying and from that point it's all over for the bad guys pete freaks out the little worm the slime one of the most disgusting characters i've ever seen in any film horrible and he he managed to manages to get away Corey comes down helps situate Olsen's character. I wish I remembered her name so I didn't just keep calling her Elizabeth Olsen. Yeah, I, I can't remember it. <laughs> Jane. Jane Banner. <laughs> That's original. It is what it is. Um, it is what And yeah, Pete's running away and Jane's still alive and um, Corey takes her to the trailer and is like trying to help her and stuff. And she's like, mm-hmm. give me my radio. I'll call and help. You go get him. And I love the line where he's like, you know he's not coming back, right? And she says, yeah. 
And yeah. I, I love that. Um, she gives him permission to go kill the guy because Corey promised um, Gil Burningham's character that he would kill him. Um, mm-hmm. So then we get the horror movie scene where Pete is in the woods hearing these twigs all around him, just trying to find whoever's chasing him. And then Corey comes up behind him and just baps him with the rifle. It was, it was, it was cathartic to be sure. I just want to point out one thing before we get to the, that final sequence props to smart movie characters. Again, Elizabeth Jane wearing the bulletproof vest. Gosh, that was, I mean, that literally saved her life being shot point blank with that shotgun in the chest. She got nicked in the, in the neck area by some of the, some of the shot, but the majority of it was centered on her chest and because she was wearing the bulletproof vest, it literally saved her life. And I'm just, I'm all for smart, smart movie decisions and smart movie characters. And that was another one. Yeah. It's, it's one of those movies where everything feels so believable because everyone is just a smart person. Right. Um, So after Pete gets bopped, he wakes up without his shoes on top of a mountain with Corey calmly sitting beside him. Corey gets the confession out of him. And then instead of shooting him, he says, I'll give you a chance. There's a highway six miles away. That's how far um, the, the murdered girl ran. Let's see if you can make it. And it's pitiful to watch Pete try and run away. He makes it. What? How far do you think he makes yards? Hundred yards. Hundred yards. Yeah, max. He just falls over and dies, and it's pretty horrific, but it's also very rewarding. (laughs) One, that guy is an absolute worm. Like I said before, it's he's pathetic in every sense of the word to it, 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 it's this bitter sweet reward because it's the sense of reward that justice has finally been served, but you almost feel in a way that it's, it's not quite enough because no matter how much justice can be served, it's never going to bring the girl Natalie back. And so you do have this. Yeah. It's, you finally get this, this climactic moment and the re- resolve that you want and still there's just this this sadness inside you cuz it doesn't it doesn't bring her back yeah which is a theme of the movie right like a lot of the right. Corey and Gil Burningham talk about are the fact that you're never going to feel the same but you have to allow yourself to suffer so you can get used to it and that is really right. what the climax feels like it's yeah, he's gone from the world, but it doesn't bring her back. Mm-hmm. And you just have to accept that. And it's, that's what grief is. It's very powerful. Um, I think one of the lines is, it's okay to hurt sometimes. Yeah. And um, that's true. And then we get two closing scenes mm-hmm. after um, Pete's death. My favorite of the two is in the hospital with Corey and Jane. And she's just waking up 
from her injuries or whatever. She's in the hospital bed. And uh, Corey's being all funny and stuff and just trying to be amicable and starts reading the magazine and it's clear there he's flirting a little bit, which is kind of cute. But um, she just starts breaking down in the middle of it. And all she says is she ran six miles in the snow. And Corey responds, yeah, she did. Yeah. I don't know why, but that just hit me because it must have taken something special to run six miles in the snow. And Corey talks about that a lot in the movie, how she must have been a warrior and a fighter. Um, yeah. And it, it definitely seems like Jane finally had that realization. Yeah, when when she says, talking about her survival, saying, I was just, and he no, there, there's no here. You revived because you fought. Yeah, I love that line. And and the final, the final ending, the moment between uh, Gil Birmingham and Corey. It's like we've said about the whole film. It's somber, but it leaves us in this good place where as the viewers, we realize it's okay to be sad. Yeah. There's, it's a, I wouldn't call it like hopeful, but there's a, there's a tinge of hope in the scene where you kind of feel like they're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to be able to keep on. Absolutely. It's, the whole movie feels very complete. Um, not much. There's like, there's nothing I would cut really. Um, on my first initial thoughts, I didn't think it was paced very well. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, that crazy gunfight we talked about at the mining camp. I, to me, when I was watching it, it felt like that was like the climax of act two. But that was really kind of the midpoint of Act Three. I didn't. I thought there would be another like thirty or forty minutes to the movie. Um, yeah. So it was kind of jarring when it ended quickly after that. But talking about it and thinking about it more, it really does work. Um, it's. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be longer. It does what it sets out to do, and it's. It's it's great. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a fantastic movie. Sheridan was three for three when when writing this American Frontier trilogy. Something Absolutely. you pointed out is he's he's not quite as dynamic a director as Denis Villeneuve was in Sicario, but I think we can let that slide a little bit because oh, this is only only a second. Not that it was bad; it was just more standard. This is only his second film, and Villeneuve is one of the best in Hollywood. Yeah, I think I think there were flashes of brilliance, and I think he'll grow into a fantastic director. Like the, the like we mentioned, the trailer gunfight was insane and very tense and perfectly directed. Um, but nothing about it felt 
or not much of the movie felt super special outside of that scene from a directorial standpoint at least but like you said it wasn't bad it was just kind of it was there yeah <laughs> yeah so what would you how would you score this i when i first watched it last night as soon as i was done i was like well that was a pretty good movie it's powerful um but i wasn't super jacked on it, it just wasn't super high on it so I, I was thinking it would be like an eight ish range. Mm-hmm. Um, but just honestly, just talking about it and thinking about it more, I, I'm going to give it a 9.25. It is. Wow. It's important. It feels important. And it feels like a story that needed to be told. Um, and it's very hard to watch. So I can't just recommend it to everybody. But if you think you can handle it, uh, it's absolutely worth viewing. Right. Like I mentioned last week, it follows that beat of simple premise, very in-depth personal storytelling. Like Elijah said, I wouldn't recommend this film to every, anyone. It's definitely for a mature audience. And it, it, it's rough to get through at points. But it's certainly worth a watch if if you're inclined to watch it. I'm going to give it about an eight and a half. Yeah, As I said, it's, it's it's, it's, it is excellent. But like I said, it, it is somber. And it, and, and it can be rough to get through. Absolutely. Um, but think it's time to move on from the somber talk about more fun stuff hey i'm done well quickly how would you briefly how would you rank the three films that sheridan wrote yeah yeah um i i will give the caveat that i have not seen sicario in a couple years um Mm -hmm. but i remember sicario as my favorite so i would say sicario one wind river two pretty close behind actually um and Hell or High Water 3, all of them are excellent. And honestly, depending on how I'm feeling, it could change. Yeah. Yeah, I would go Hell or High Water 1, Wind River 2, Sicario 3. I wasn't the biggest fan of Sicario. That's for another time. Just specifically the ending I had a hard time with because there felt like there was no redemption in the ending it was oh there's zero redemption in that ending yeah this film was dark but it had that glimmer of hope at the end that we discussed and it felt like there was a point to the badness in some in some ways i'm not trying to run down sicario just it didn't wasn't the biggest fan that's okay uh but now let's talk about music (laughs) music i love it um I think something that's not going to make me cry in half a second here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think we're talking about our, some of our favorite uses in uses of songs in movies. These are songs that have been, were written prior to the movie's release. So they were not written for the movie and they were not part of the movie score. Um, Popular songs included in films. Right. Or maybe not so popular. Um, Yeah. 
But basically, I, I just want to point out that this isn't an exhaustive list for me. It might not even be my true top five because I you always forget something. But these are five instances of songs that I think were used very well in movies. Um, right. And we both have five. I think we'll go back and forth, spend a minute or two on each and just have some fun. Works for me. I've got a couple, I don't want to say honorable mentions, but ones I do want to mention here quickly before we talk about the, the main five I want to focus on. Mention them then. The first two are ones that I didn't men- uh, list as my five because we've talked about those scenes in previous weeks, but the first one was Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics in X-Men Apocalypse, the mansion rescue scene where Quicksilver rescues everyone. We talked about that last week, I believe. Yeah. The second one is the immigrant song in Thor Ragnarok. We That's talked about one. that several weeks ago. Yeah, it's a great it's a great scene, but we've talked about it. The last one I want to talk about is Caravan and Whiplash from the film Whiplash. I didn't include it in the main five just because there's not a specific scene that you can point to. Obviously, well, actually, I guess I could. Caravan at the end, the final, the final performance of the film, where there he's performing Caravan to J.K. Simmons' character, yeah, is great. But I just wanted to mention those before we moved on. Sweet. Um, I'll start us off if you don't mind. Go ahead. Okay, my first is "Ode to Joy" by Beethoven from Die Hard. <laughs> Uh, die hard. Um, it's it sounds super dumb on paper, but when the villains in Die Hard first open the vault and see their prize, it plays Ode to Joy, which feels super out of place, but it's kind of hilarious on a surface level. And <laughs> if you think about it, it kind of and this might seem a stretch, but in my mind, it does add to the characters a little because Ode to Joy is this huge encapsulation of just joy and happiness and like everything you want and that these villains are doing that over money is just supports the fact that they're literally just thieves they're robbers they're not terrorists they're not some huge super villains or anything they're just people who want money um right and it works in the movie it makes you grin it's super cheesy but it does lend some characterization to the villain some more. And I, I really like it. That's fair. That's fair. I know you, I know you love you some die hard. Die hard. Die harder. The second one. <laughs> so from the movie, I am legend. Three little birds by Bob Marley. This is not a film you've seen, is it? Nope. All right, so I won't, I won't spoil it. But one of the, there's an emotional part halfway through the film, where Will Smith's character breaks down the song and its meaning, and Bob Marley. He tells a story about Mar Bob Marley, and the song, and it's just it's a very emotional impact for the film. And it was used brilliantly, and it it was a it was a, a song that they had used previously in the film and built up to that moment. So it was very well done. I liked it. I'm not going to spoil it. 
Awesome. I've heard good things about that movie and I'd love to see it someday. Yeah, we should talk about it sometime. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I will, if you don't mind, get into my second one. And that is going to be, this may feel like a little bit of a cheat, but it's not, I promise. Also, pardon this <laughs> pronunciation. Non je ne regrette rien by Edith Paif from Inception. <laughs> that is the song that plays to wake them up from the different levels of the dreams. And that's how they sync the kicks. And it's not a typical use of a song in a movie, but it's so clever to time that with a song. And the sound of that song has kind of come a little, become a little bit iconic um, because of the movie. And I think it's such a brilliant use of a song. Um, yeah, it just, it just makes sense. And it works in the movie. And Nolan's a genius. Nolan. We know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what other movie shares that song? What movie? Madagascar 3. <laughs> a masterpiece. <laughs> a masterclass in animated film. <laughs> Ironically, my second pick is Madagascar 3. <laughs> my second pick is from the film Invincible. Hey, I saw that movie. It is I Got a Name by Jim Croce. By the way, can I just point out, I love that Mark Wahlberg plays a, a dedicated Patriots fan plays a Philadelphia Eagle. That's what's great. I love it. I mean, it's not a huge thing. It's, no, not, it's, like, a huge thing. it's not like <laughs> if he was playing a Giants player or something. Mm, yeah, that would be like, that'd be horrible. Also, uh, John Krasinski in The Office played an Eagles fan, and he's a huge Patriots fan, and he's not over the fact that the Eagles beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. I mean, it was a good game. We have six of them. It's okay. We don't need seven. We had 28-3 yeah. to three the previous year. It's okay. <laughs> Tom Brady's about to get number seven in Tampa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tom, I am all on the Tampa Bay train. Florida Tampa. Tom is the greatest. Tampa Bay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get your joke. I just don't like it. I don't either. <laughs> In Invincible, the opening sequence of the film is to that song, I Got a Name. I loved it as a kid. I still love it. It's great. I love the song. I love the use of the song in this film. Great. It's, it I, remember great. That, I remember that being a good movie. It was a great movie. It's one of my dad's dad's favorite movies. Nice. One yeah, of the better sports crazy. movies. <laughs> the best. <laughs> no, man. <laughs> Nothing will top the Sandlot. Have you seen Space Jam? No. Come on. Come on. Michael Jordan, that's all you need to know. Whatever, dude. <laughs> um, <laughs> my number three. Whatever, dude. <laughs> my third pick is You Can Never Tell by Chuck Berry. In Pulp Fiction, mm. um, 
one of the most iconic scenes in one of the most iconic movies of all time. Uh, <clears throat> this song is what jo, um, John Travolta and Uma Thurman, who plays Mia, I forget John Travolta's character's name, um, but they go on a date and they get $5 milkshakes. And that's a joke in the movie, $5 milkshakes. <laughs> I don't get it. You wouldn't unless you watched the movie, which you should. Um, and then Tarantino's a big no for me. There's a there's a dance competition. It's like it's like a retro rock and roll esque diner they go to, and there's a dance competition that happens, and they decide to enter it, and they dance to the song, and it's just an iconic scene of both of them dancing, and it's it's pretty good. It's it's entertaining, but it's just. Most people know the Pulp Fiction dancing scene, and it's it's awesome. That movie is great. Watch Pulp Fiction. All right. I just needed another excuse to talk about a Tarantino movie. <laughs> <laughs> One day we will get through an episode without a Tarantino reference. What if I One pick day. a Tarantino movie? I might say no. Oof. <laughs> my next pick is from back to the future it is johnny be good by chuck berry hey his second appearance hey chuck berry's got some good music man it's it's the fi- final sequence at the end of the sea ball marty has finally got his parents back together he has established his existence once again and he's been playing he's been playing in relief of this guy who had injured his hand trying to rescue marty out of the back of a trunk and they've been playing this very slow music and so marty decides he's going to play something and he calls it an oldie but a goodie which is hilarious because he's in 1955 and he plays this song johnny be good and no one's heard anything like it and they're loving it and they're rocking out to it and i love it one of the 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 leader of the band i can't remember his name but he's like he's like hey chuck it's your cousin i think i finally found that new sound you've been looking for listen to this <laughs> that's awesome it, it that's a great movie it, i love that movie so much i watched it the other day it's it's a great movie yeah, and that's a fantastic use of a song. Super fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, my fourth pick here is very relevant to today's episode because it is Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion hey. from Baby Driver. And I'm sorry, but that opening scene is one of the most thrilling, awesome scenes in recent, like of any movie of the past few years. Like everything's time to music when he just starts jamming in the car once the other once the crew goes in to pull the heist and he's just like that's me in the car when i put music on and then really uh close to it and (laughs) when they when they get back and john bernthal points forward and baby goes backward it's awesome and the whole car chase following it in time with bell bottoms is so fun and it's awesome and i watch that scene Probably once a month on YouTube. <laughs> John Bernthal should have been in that movie longer. He's, yeah, he's great. He died, though. 
That happens a lot. It does. Uh, yeah. Oof. Oof is right. You ready for my next one? Yeah. Uh, it is from the film Logan. It is the song it. Devil's Whisper by... What am I going to say? No, I just knew you'd have a Logan song. Oh. Okay, so technically I can't do Hurt by Johnny Cash because it was only used in the trailer and I can't use Man Comes Around because it was used in the end credits. Well, I guess technically I could. You could do but that one. <laughs> I was, okay. Excellent use of When the, uh, the Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash in the end credits. Interesting note on that album that man comes around he all the other songs that album were covers rick rubin decided to just he chose all the other songs for johnny cash to cover and let johnny who was old he was in his 70s at that point i think it was the last album released before he died he let him just write that song to take his time to write that song which is great not what we're talking about here uh the song I was going to say was Logan Devil's Whisper by Rory. He's a young Atlanta based rapper. Not a big, I'm not a big rap fan, but I like the use of the song here when they're visiting the, the farmhouse in the middle of the film. And Laura is given the iPod to listen to some music and she just listens to the, listens to the music and you can hardly hear it. And she just goes off to sleep listening to it thought it was great use of a not very common not not, not a very well-known song so yeah it was, a, it was a creative use for sure and one of the best scenes of the movie for sure as well yep um my fifth and final pick for some of my favorites uses of songs in movies is come and get your love by redbone in Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> yep. I, I don't think I have to say much about it. It's mm -hmm. it's so fun. Every it's iconic at this point. Every song in that movie is fun. Peter Quill mm -hmm. and that song and dancing is fun. Yep. <laughs> the freaking riff on it in Endgame is fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 iconic it's gonna be iconic forever um yeah i could have picked a million songs from either of the guardians movies but i think this one still takes the cake for me yeah if we're talking specific use of a specific song i think one of the best examples of that is brandy mm -hmm. looking uh, by looking glass in guards of the galaxy 2 I was going to include it as one of my five, but I didn't. I ended up not. just wanted to mention it here. Another yeah, one I wanted to mention. Close. Yeah. 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 It, and, it, and it plays a very big part of the story. It's not just on the side. Yeah. So I appreciated that. Another one I just want to throw out there quickly before I get to my final one. I'm sorry. Were you done? I, I just assumed you were done. Oh, yeah. There's not much to say about that one. It, it's too good. <laughs> Go ahead. It's just funny. 
The other one I wanted to mention lastly before I get to my five is You Ask Me To by Waylon Jennings in Hell or High Water. Didn't pick it because, again, I talked about it ad nauseum last week. Yes, you did. Yeah, a lot. In, in, any any instance of three seconds of silence, I was like, how about that Waylon Jennings song? <laughs> and I just like, that's great. Still don't know who Waylon Jennings is. Yeah, and I still don't. <laughs> my Fifth and final pick is from 2016's La La Land. Good movie. Yes. I figured out how to work La La Land into this conversation. Do you know what song I'm going to pick here? Um, I'm assuming a jazz song. <laughs> You're correct. It is Japanese folk song by in my opinion, the greatest pianist to ever live and one of the best jazz musicians ever, Thelonious Monk. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was so excited. It's it's the scene at the beginning of the movie where Sebastian is trying to transpose a song while he's driving the car and he keeps rewinding the tape to hear the one part while he's trying to transpose it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yeah. I've seen the movie and a million that, times. <laughs> yeah, and that song is... Japanese folk song which is great because about five seconds after that little part that he keeps rewinding it breaks into a saxophone solo which is awesome because for the majority of the 16 minute song it's mostly saxophone (laughs) great song I love that Thelonious Monk ended up in La La Land such a good movie cannot wait to talk about that yeah I've been so excited to talk about this Thelonious Monk song for so long I'm so glad. (laughs) (laughs) So there we have it. Yeah. That's five for each of us, right? Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add before we kind of wrap this thing up? Um, Not really. Pretty opposing movies in this episode. Watch Baby Driver if you want to have some fun and watch Wind River if you want to feel bad about yourself. Yeah. And watch Bird if you're a jazz fan that's true too yeah well we're just about done here again looking towards next week elijah's not going to be here he's going to take some time off and elijah just just go have some fun okay do something do something crazy go go get married or something i want you to have fun that's a that's a good idea i think i will (laughs) all right why don't you do that uh i'll definitely miss you again wish i could be there but circumstances don't provide that so yeah all uh sucks well yeah but we'll uh we'll get back in touch here on the podcast in a couple weeks and with while you're gone we'll try to make the best of it right so i look forward to hearing about it (laughs) next week i am going to have a guest on and we are going to be watching one film just one it'll be x-men days of days of future past the rogue cut and then in our shortened second segment we'll be ranking all of the x-men and wolverine films so that'll be a lot of fun and it's it's not necessarily a franchise that elijah has gone head over heels for so i don't yeah you know it's it's probably good that i'm missing this one because i've only seen three of the 84 x-men movies (laughs) but you liked all three to some degree right i loved one liked one and was thoroughly met on one (laughs) You were mad on the first class? 
Yeah. It was Fun pretty fact. There is a scene where they're in a boat. And that boat is in the water. It's supposed to take place in Florida. However, it was... I knew it was a location thing. <laughs> <laughs> off the... Off of a pier. So on another this great Robera. Tarantino movie is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> Interesting you mentioned that movie because there's a scene in that movie and I <laughs> Yeah. All right. But the best scene in first class is when um uh Magneto pushes a quarter through Kevin Bacon's head. I was just gonna say I've been to that pier from the you know. I've been to that pier a lot. I have pictures of that pier mm. also. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. That's a great movie. All right. We're done here. I have been Forrest. He's been Elijah. You guys have been beautiful as always. Until next time, stay beautiful. See you in a couple weeks. <laughs>